You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning, everyone. Um, I don't ever walk up here to pray and expect to all of a sudden need to be prayed over. But uh, bear with me this morning. Uh, I think everything that's been in my head for a week is now deciding to come out, and it's just all drifting down my throat. Um, If you weren't here last week, uh, I sounded like Barry White's second cousin, I think. So we're all good. Um, so over the, throughout this month, we're, we are pausing in Romans for a bit and returning to our sermon series on foundations. And we're very specifically looking at <clears throat> what does it look like to be the, the everyday church um, in the culture that we live in. <clears throat> Last week I shared with you that there are 85 million Americans who at this moment are unchurched. There are 85 million Americans who wake up today and they have no intention of coming uh, to a worship gathering like this one. And so, in light of this, it makes it even more clear that God's people are going to have to live out in front of those 85 million people um, what it looks like for us to love one another, what it looks like for a life to be transformed because of Christ. And Jesus said that this would be recognizable, first and foremost, by our love for one another. And Peter echoes this in the first letter that he writes. And he's writing that letter to Christians who've been scattered everywhere because of persecution. And so, as we looked last week in 1 Peter... Peter says, first of all, that this common denominator that we have is that we have all been born again to a living hope. He goes on to say that that hope, it's manifested through our obedient lives. It it grows and it's nourished when we're obedient to Jesus. And then further, it becomes very, very visible to the world around us by Peter's words, it's made visible through brotherly love um, when it's lived out in community that is built on the living, abiding word of God. So this every day, this gospel, this missional community that the Bible describes is built on fellowship that is built on the living and abiding word of God. So within that Context within that community and understanding that that community is in the context of John 13, 34, and 35 where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Within that community in that context, the next question that we need to ask and answer is, how do we care for one another? How do we care for each other? You're possibly familiar with the term pastoral care. That term may like ring a bell for some of us. The problem is, for a lot of us who even have heard that term before or think that we know what it means, we probably have a skewed understanding of what it actually means. Um, My father was in ministry for 20-something years, and uh, he was at the same church the whole time, the church that I grew up in, 
the last half of my dad's ministry for 10 years before my dad had a traumatic brain injury and ultimately wound up passing away from his battle with cancer. Um, the last half of my dad's ministry, his title at the church where I grew up was the pastor over pastoral care. Um, now, granted, there were 2,500 or so, I don't remember how many, lots and lots of people within this church. But there was a pastor literally designated just for pastoral care. And I want to tell you, um, this is nothing to say uh, against my dad or against my home church. But I think that just my dad's title um, probably gave a misunderstanding to people of what that actually ought to look like, pastoral care. Um, <clears throat> what does everyday pastoral care look like? That's the question we want to answer this morning as we keep going in First Peter. So if you'll join me there, <clears throat> we're actually going to start and overlap where we ended last week in First Peter um, chapter 1, verse 22. <clears throat> Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. <clears throat> the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, because of this, put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander. Those things have no need to exist among you, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Uh, I shared with you last week, um, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis wrote a book about five, six, seven years ago called Everyday Church. And it's an exposition of First Peter in looking at what does the New Testament church look like lived out in a culture <clears throat> that's hostile to it. How do we go about this everyday church? Well, in that book, um, here's one of the statements that they make. What forms and sustains Christian community is perhaps paradoxically, not a commitment to community per se, but a commitment to the gospel word. What do they mean? Well, um, you may have heard of Alexander Fleming. Alexander Fleming is the guy who is credited with discovering penicillin. I'm appreciative of Alexander this week because I'm on medication that wouldn't be here without his discovery. But Fleming did not set out to discover penicillin. He was just trying to figure out what the deal was with this bacteria. And the next thing he knows, it's killing the things in the Petri dish, and now you and I have antibiotics. He didn't set out to discover penicillin, much less antibiotics. If you and I set out to just find community the community that's being described in the New Testament, that's not necessarily what we're going to find, if that's our sole objective and our aim. 
Um, we're very, very careful here at the brook that we do not tell you or exhort you or encourage you to simply do life together. You can pretty much do that completely devoid of the gospel. I mean, there's all kinds of like groups and, and friends and things that we have in our life um, that you can do life together with a lot of people for a lot of reasons, and the Lord um, may not ever even become one of those reasons. This is why we're very, very specific uh, about the fact that we are called to live on mission for the gospel together, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's the mutual commitment to God's word in our lives that fuels and fosters community. Going back to the book Everyday Church, <clears throat> an exclusive focus on community will kill community. It is only the word of God that creates an enduring community of life and love. So Peter says, we are born again of an imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. A couple of things that are very important for us to understand. The word of God is imperishable. So is the family of God. The word of God, um, it cannot be destroyed. It cannot be done away with. The family of God is imperishable as well. We have been born again um, into this imperishable family. And this is vital for us as sons and daughters of God, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, to understand why. Put very simply, because our earthly families are not eternal. Earthly families break up. They do. Um, earthly families, some of you in this room right now, there may be within your earthly family division. There may be some fracture. <clears throat> there may not be, but here's the thing. Eventually, death, if nothing else, is going to break that family up. It's going to separate the earthly families that we have are not eternal, but the family of God is. Jesus was trying to help everyone understand this, and there are things that he would say that in the, the, the moment um, were very misunderstood. Um, let's look at a couple. Um, if you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, And as we read these things that Jesus said, we're reading them to help us understand um, how we are to view family. Okay, Jesus in Matthew 10 is talking about the end times, um, the end of all things. He says in verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. To be clear, um, what Jesus is saying here in the language with which he's speaking is not, hey guys, I really came to just jack up your families. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what he is saying is, it is inevitable, um, just my existence, that if many of you choose to follow me, 
um, a father and son will be set against one another. Some of you that choose to follow me, your relationships will not grow together. They will be divided and separated. It is an inevitable conclusion for many of you who are going to choose to follow me. Verse 36, And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life, whoever wants to hold on to it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, surrenders his life for my sake, will find it. Jesus is warning us that all of these relationships, they're fragile because they're not eternal. So if you hold on to them tighter than you hold on to me, um, it's not going to work out. Turn a few pages over to Matthew 19. In Matthew chapter 19, Peter says, Hey, Jesus, me and the guys, we've left everything to follow you. We've left it all behind. And basically Peter says, what about us? Look at verse 29. Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are last will be first and the last first. And many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is saying here, um, not just, yes, if these things, if you lose these things now here in these moments, that in eternity, you'll get them back and, and you'll get more. No, Jesus is talking present tense. Jesus is saying, you may have left those things behind to follow me, but what you will gain is exponentially greater because your earthly family may rebuke you. Your earthly family may disown you, but the family of God, it will last and it is here for you now. Turn to the Gospel of Mark, <clears throat> chapter 3. And this is really where Jesus starts to ruffle some feathers. Jesus' mom and his brothers know that people have been talking about him. People are saying things. Some of you mamas in this room are the most gentle, kindest people in the world, but somebody starts talking about your baby, get back. They've been talking about Mary's firstborn, and they've been saying some stuff. And they're, they've come to get Jesus to bring him home, and hey, let's talk about this. Maybe we need to chill out on some of the things that we're saying. Mark 3, verse 31. Jesus' mother and brother came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
Friends, if your entire earthly family has come to know Christ, or if you come to the end of your life and for the most part, there's not any division or fracture within your family because of the gospel, know this, you are massively an exception and not the rule. Now, maybe not in this room, but this is, again, one of our problems. We think that the makeup of the, the whole Christian world is pretty right, much right here in this room. We don't take into account that we're this small little drop on the globe and that most of our brothers and sisters who have gathered around the planet today to worship the Lord, they've done it in secret because it's really not legal for them to do so. We, we think about everything in our context there are many, many of our brothers and sisters who by their choice to follow Jesus have left their family. Their family has said, we don't know you, we don't own you, you don't belong to us anymore. So if we get to the end of our life and, and our family is all together around the gospel, we are without a doubt an exception and not the rule. <coughs> Excuse me. Regardless, our earthly family is not eternal, okay? And, and what I'm about to say um, may ruffle some feathers, but we need to understand this. If you're married, your marriage is not eternal. And some of you want to come up to me later and say, now, I love my wife enough that, yes, it is. No, it's not. Mormon theology teaches you that your marriage is eternal. It also teaches you that if your marriage is good enough and you have enough kids and that you follow Mormonism closely enough that you will inherit your own planet and be your own God. I'm not going to chase too far down that trail this morning, but our, our marriages are not eternal, okay? Um, <clears throat> in the kingdom of God, in eternity, there will not be ex-wives there will not be crazy second cousins um, there will not be great grandparents some of you right now ought to be like rejoicing um, your crazy second cousin may be there but at least they won't be my cousin anymore um, those things are not going to have status some of you here this morning you think I like being a grandparent I'd, I'd like to be a grandparent in eternity well, what if your grandparent liked being a grandparent too? Who gets to be the grandparent? You follow this to the logical end and you understand those relationships and those, those statuses, they're going to mean nothing within the kingdom, okay? Earthly roles and relationships will not last. However, our born-again family will endure all things, the foundation of that imperishable family is the imperishable word. And so understanding this, this ought to make us prayerfully consider every once in a while, um, what priority does the word have in my relationships? And you can't answer that question without answering another question, which first is, what priority does the word have in my own life? It's going to matter. The word of God, friends, stirs our affections 
toward Christ. I think that at times we've almost done a disservice to understanding this because when we talk about love, um, out of reaction to the fact that within our culture, there's so much of a belief that love, it's just a feeling that we have. And so we're careful to always say love isn't a feeling, it's a decision that we make, it's a choice to put someone before yourself. Definitely it is, but we've said this so much that I think that we've given the impression that love is void of emotion. That love is void of feeling and affection. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. Love stirs our affections. The word of God stirs our affections for Christ. But here's the thing. It also stirs our affections for and toward one another. Because when we both are, are living on the, the word, uh, the trustworthy knowledge um, that the word of God tramples our fears, that it completely fills us with hope, that it convicts us when we sin against one another, that it changes our desires, it builds our confidence. All of this helps us understand why we must be a word-centered community. We have got to be a community that is built upon and exists because of the word of God. So, again, <clears throat> let's go back to the question from the beginning. In light of this, what does everyday pastoral care look like within the context of everyday community. Turn with me for a minute to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> beginning in verse 11, Paul says that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking in tr the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. <clears throat> the saints, the people of God, the followers of Christ are called to do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So when we read what Paul says here and we're thinking about pastoral care, what is pastoral care? Pastoral care is the equipping of the saints, the equipping of the people of God by the pastors to care for one another. That's pastoral care. 
pastoral care is, hey, we sure need to make sure that nobody slips through the cracks, so let's hire a pastor just to take care of people. That will be easier, but that's not what the Bible says to do. The Bible says that men like myself are called to train and raise up and equip the body that we might care for one another. Let's look at the affirmation of this throughout the word of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15 for a moment. And again, this goes way, way beyond just praying for one another or baking a lasagna when somebody is sick. In Romans chapter 15, um, beginning in verse 13, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So here are all of you, you're abounding in hope. Paul says, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are filled with goodness, filled with all knowledge, and here, listen to this, and are able to instruct one another. Followers of Christ, the people of God, ought to be able to instruct one another. If you go back to where we were in Ephesians chapter 4 there, Paul says in verse 15 that we're to speak the truth in love to one another. We're supposed to tell each other the truth because you and I understand that our heart is deceitful above all things and sometimes guess who tells themselves what they want to hear? We do. And we need somebody to go, hey, I don't think that's reality. Uh, Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ, let the living and abiding word dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Because you are walking and living in the living and abiding word, you should be teaching one another, admonishing one another. Turn like two pages over into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. <clears throat> Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Some people need a swift kick in the butt. Give it to them. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Paul says that you and I, we're to admonish one another, encourage one another, instruct one another, help one another, and be patient with one another. He throws that one in there last, probably on purpose. This is going to take patience. A few more pages over in the letter of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God that's serious business so that doesn't happen exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort 
one another. Push one another toward Jesus. When everyday pastoral care is taking place, we are teaching and instructing one another where we are ignorant. And I don't mean that in a a make fun of, derogatory kind of ignorant way. Ignorance means you don't know. Well, where you and I don't know, another brother or sister needs to help us know. Um, When everyday pastoral care is taking place, we encourage and we comfort one another when we're weary and we're burdened. We speak the truth to one another in love when we're beginning to be deceived or we're deceiving ourselves. We also rebuke and admonish one another when we begin to fall away or fall into sin. And I want to submit to you this morning that that last one is where I think a lot of us begin to trail off. You, you lost me with rebuke. I, I'll leave that to somebody else. Why do you think that is? Why do we have a hard time with this? I think we see rebuke as some very, very severe and extraordinary last resort for some cataclysmic thing. And so we very, very rarely extend it. We don't rebuke one another because we think that that's reserved for like, that's worst case scenario. Um, We see it as confrontation. And if we did a survey today in this room, hey, and, and let's don't pretend any of us enjoy confrontation. There's probably one or two sadistic folks in the room. Um, <clears throat> that's not what we're talking about here, but we're talking about seeing confrontation in life as this is necessary. Every once in a while, it, it's necessary to put the truth in front of one another and go, we got to deal with this. But we see rebuke as confrontation or again, some great crisis And so we rarely extend it, and we also probably very rarely receive it. Here's the great, great issue with this, my friends. If we seldom rebuke one another, it is very highly likely because we very, very rarely repent to one another. We don't. Maybe we've heard that James said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And we're like, yeah, that sounds good, but I don't need any of that. And obviously you probably haven't uttered that from your mouth, but if confession of sin and repentance is not really existent in any of our relationships with one another, that's what we say and think. I don't really need any of that. I don't need any of that confession. I don't need any of that healing. But go back with me for a moment to Hebrews chapter 3 here and, and, and read again what it says in verse 13. Exhort one another. Push each other back to the living gospel every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We've got to understand, all of us, we are just a few small steps away from buying the deceitfulness of sin. We're there. We're on the brink almost at all times. 
Right now, there's a situation going on in my life where some decisions are being made, and at this moment, the decisions, they're really not in my hands. And I'm not exaggerating with you when I tell you that every day, multiple times a day right now, I am having to prayerfully fight off bitterness. That better turn out the way I'm hoping. I can already feel the, the bitterness like trying to root itself in my heart and, and grow itself up into my life. I feel it. You feel it too. There's this sin that if we're not careful, it's going to sink its claws in, and the next thing we know, we've gone back to being a slave. Be careful. You're a few steps away. And see, here's the thing. There are going to be these moments where, uh, whether it's spontaneous or, or not, in these moments where we come to this realization that our brother or our sister, yes, has maybe in some cataclysmic way fallen off into the ditch or walked into this life of sin or, or, or is become a slave to something that is just poisoning their mind. There may be these extreme situations where we have to intervene and say, you've got to come back to the Lord. We'll be more prepared for those if we'll just learn in the everyday to confess and repent to one another. I, I don't need to tell you today because it's not true. I, I, I don't have an issue with porn in my life. I don't. But I would be lying to you if I told you that I went through every day and I didn't struggle with lust. That I don't struggle with materialism uh, up past my head. I gotta confess this to brothers who will pray for me and will hold my feet to the fire for, for men who will bring me back to the gospel. Because see, when I confess to somebody, my face is in the mud. It's not because I want them to go, well, here, let me make sure that you got plenty of mud and shove me down further. No, I need them to remind me, no, 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 you have been lifted up by Christ. You need to wipe your face off and remember who you are. I need to be brought back to the gospel. We need regular, proactive, intentional confession and repentance with one another. And again, this isn't so that we can berate and scold one another, so that we can lecture one another. We don't need that. It's actually so that we can speak the grace and mercy and the love of the gospel over one another. But I want you to consider this, friends. Go back to First Peter and go a little further into the letter with me. In chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray. And then he says this, above all, keep loving one, or one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 
this doesn't mean that love says, hey man, I'll, I'll protect you. I'll, your secret's safe with me. No, this means that love says to somebody, you don't need to walk in this sin anymore. Remember what Christ has done for you. And see, in light of all of that, <clears throat> understand that if I'm going to actively help one of my brothers get the speck of sin out of their own eye, you know what that's going to be demanding of me? It's going to be demanding of me that I'm getting the big nasty log out of my own eye. So mutual benefit. Um, if I'm going to be regularly reminding you, you are no longer condemned because of what Christ has done. What winds up happening is I'm regularly reminding myself. There is no condemnation anymore for me because my life is hidden with Christ. I got to stop living like I'm condemned. If I'm going to regularly and persistently bring you back to the word of God, remind you, what does the gospel say about this situation that you're in? For me to remind you and bring you back to the word, guess where I have to be living? In the word. In the living and abiding word of God. If I'm going to exhort you toward joy, toward the inexpressible joy that we have in hope in Christ. If I'm going to push you toward the unshakable hope that I have in Jesus, I've got to be walking in that joy and in that hope. All of this is rooted in the foundation of the living and abiding word of God. Now, real quick before we close, there are two extremes, I think, that have kept us from this. And one, I kind of alluded to it before. One, one extreme that, that can keep us from walking this out, living this out, is the idea that a lot of us grew up in, that we expect the pastors to do everything. There's a family that left this church before because somebody in the family had foot surgery and a pastor didn't show up to pray with them. And that was it. Coincidentally, my own mother, who's watching, I know, on the live stream this morning, had foot surgery on Wednesday. I'm, I'm being just very honest with you. My mom had a pastor come to her foot surgery, me. And it's probably because I'm her son. I, there's, there's three of us, there's about to be four of us, there's 400, 500 of us. We can't anoint every toe with oil and pray over every situation. It's not possible, but that's not what we're called to. We're called to equip the saints to do the work of ministry so that when every part of the body is doing its part, we grow up in love. That's what Paul says. But now here's the other extreme. The other extreme is that there are some of us that we don't want anybody to have to care about anything for us. I'm being a hair exaggerative here, but we've had situations before where on a Sunday, somebody comes in and says, hey, did you hear about Ted? What about Ted? Oh, he drove himself to the hospital on Wednesday. They opened him up and did an emergency quintuple bypass, found a tumor in there, removed it. We don't hear nothing. Nobody heard anything. 
Because some of us, we just don't want to burden anybody with any of our problems. You don't get to make that choice. Because see, Paul says that we are to carry one another's burdens. But understand, before Paul ever uttered those words, Jesus said, Come to me when you are weary and you are heavy burdened. What Paul is saying and affirming with what Jesus is saying is, you and I cannot carry the burden on our own. Our pride is what it is. Don't think if that's you, if I just don't want to burden anybody. Don't think you're being all humble. Actually, what you're being is prideful. You got to let one of us carry the load with you. You've got to let some of us carry the load with you. Everyday pastoral care happens when the people of God walk one another back to the living and abiding word of God in all circumstances, to remind one another of the inexpressible joy that we have, to remind one another of the unshakable hope that we have. Everyday pastoral care can only happen through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, me, all of us, walking one another back to the gospel. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.